Volume One, Chapter Two of the Marble Fawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marble Fawn by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Volume One, Chapter Two The Fawn. Donatello, playfully cried Miriam, do not leave us in this perplexity. Shake aside those brown curls, my friend, and let us see whether this marvellous resemblance extends to the very tips of the ears. If so, we shall like you all the better. No, no, dearest Signorina, answered Donatello, laughing, but with a certain earnestness. I entreat you to take the tips of my ears for granted. As he spoke, the young Italian made a skip and jump, light enough for a veritable fawn, so as to place himself quite beyond the reach of the fair hand that was outstretched, as if to settle the matter by actual examination. I shall be like a wolf of the Apennines, he continued, taking his stand on the other side of the dying gladiator, if you touch my ears ever so softly. None of my race could endure it. It has always been a tender point with my forefathers and me. He spoke in Italian, with the Tuscan rusticity of accent, and an unshaped sort of utterance, betokening that he must heretofore have been chiefly conversant with rural people. Well, well, said Miriam. Your tender point, your two tender points, if you have them, shall be safe, so far as I am concerned. But how strange this likeness is, after all! And how delightful, if it really includes the pointed ears! Oh, it is impossible, of course, she continued in English, with a real and commonplace young man like Donatello. But you see how this peculiarity defines the position of the fawn, and while putting him where he cannot exactly assert his brotherhood, still disposes us kindly towards the kindred creature. He is not supernatural, but just on the verge of nature, and yet within it. What is the nameless charm of this idea, Hilda? You can feel it more delicately than I. It perplexes me, said Hilda, thoughtfully, and shrinking a little. Neither do I quite like to think about it. But surely, said Kenyon, you agree with Miriam and me that there is something very touching and impressive in this statue of the fawn. In some long-past age he must really have existed. Nature needed, and still needs, this beautiful creature, standing betwixt man and animal, sympathizing with each, comprehending the speech of either race, and interpreting the whole existence of one to the other. What a pity that he has forever vanished from the hard and dusty paths of life, unless, added the sculptor in a sportive whisper, Donatello be actually he. You cannot conceive how this fantasy takes hold of me, responded Miriam, between jest and earnest. Imagine now a real being similar to this mythic fawn. How happy, how genial, how satisfactory would be his life, enjoying the warm, sensuous, earthy side of nature, reveling in the merriment of woods and streams, living as our four-footed kindred do, as mankind did in its innocent childhood before sin, sorrow, or morality itself had ever been thought of. Ah, Kenyon, if Hilda and you and I, if I, at least, had pointed ears, for I suppose the fawn had no conscience, no remorse, no burden on the heart, no troublesome recollections of any sort, no dark future either. What a tragic tone was that last, Miriam, said the sculptor, and looking into her face he was startled to behold it pale and tear-stained. How suddenly this mood has come over you! Let it go as it came, said Miriam, like a thunder-shower in this Roman sky. 
All is sunshine again, you see. Donatello's refractoriness, as regarded his ears, had evidently cost him something, and he now came close to Miriam's side, gazing at her with an appealing air, as if to solicit forgiveness. His mute, helpless gesture of entreaty had something pathetic in it, and yet might well enough excite a laugh, so like it was to what you may see in the aspect of a hound when he thinks himself in fault or disgrace. It was difficult to make out the character of this young man, so full of animal life as he was, so joyous in his deportment, so handsome, so physically well-developed. He made no impression of incompleteness, of maimed or stinted nature, and yet, in social intercourse, these familiar friends of his, habitually and instinctively allowed for him, as for a child or some other lawless thing, exacting no strict obedience to conventional rules, and hardly noticing his eccentricities enough to pardon them. There was an indefinable characteristic about Donatello that set him outside of rules. He caught Miriam's hand, kissed it, and gazed into her eyes without saying a word. She smiled, and bestowed on him a little careless caress, singularly like what one would give to a pet dog when he puts himself in the way to receive it. Not that it was so decided a caress either, but only the merest touch, somewhere between a pat and a tap of the finger. It might be a mark of fondness, or perhaps a playful pretense of punishment. At all events, it appeared to afford Donatello exquisite pleasure, insomuch that he danced quite round the wooden railing that fences in the dying gladiator. "'It is the very step of the dancing fawn,' said Miriam, apart, to Hilda. "'What a child, or what a simpleton he is! I continually find myself treating Donatello as if he were the merest unfledged chicken, and yet he can claim no such privileges in the right of his tender age, for he is at least—how old should you think him, Hilda?' Twenty years, perhaps,' replied Hilda, glancing at Donatello. "'But indeed I cannot tell. Hardly so old, on second thoughts. Or possibly older. He has nothing to do with time, but has a look of eternal youth in his face.' "'All underwitted people have that look,' said Miriam scornfully. "'Donatello has certainly the gift of eternal youth, as Hilda suggests,' observed Kenyon, laughing. For judging by the date of this statue, which I am more and more convinced Praxiteles carved on purpose for him— he must be at least twenty-five centuries old, and he still looks as young as ever. "'What age have you, Donatello?' asked Miriam. "'Signorina, I do not know,' he answered. "'No great age, however, for I have only lived since I met you.' "'Now what old man of society could have turned a silly compliment more smartly than that?' exclaimed Miriam. "'Nature and art are just at one sometimes. But what a happy ignorance is this of our friend Donatello, not to know his own age!' It is equivalent to being immortal on earth, if I could only forget mine. It is too soon to wish that, observed the sculptor. You are scarcely older than Donatello looks. I shall be content, then, rejoined Miriam, if I could only forget one day of all my life. Then she seemed to repent of this illusion, and hastily added, A woman's days are so tedious that it is a boon to leave even one of them out of the account. The foregoing conversation had been carried on in a mood in which all imaginative people, whether artists or poets, love to indulge. In this frame of mind they sometimes find their profoundest truths side by side with the idlest jest, and utter one or the other, apparently without distinguishing which is the most valuable, or assigning any considerable value to either. The resemblance between the marble fawn and their living companion had made a deep, 
half-serious, half-mirthful impression on these three friends, and had taken them into a certain airy region. Lifting up, as it is so pleasant to feel them lifted, their heavy earthly feet from the actual soil of life. The world had been set afloat, as it were, for a moment, and relieved them for just so long of all customary responsibility for what they thought and said. It might be under this influence, or perhaps because sculptors always abuse one another's works, that Kenyon threw in a criticism upon the dying gladiator. I used to admire this statue exceedingly, he remarked, but latterly I find myself getting weary and annoyed that the man should be such a length of time leaning on his arm in the very act of death. If he is so terribly hurt, why does he not sink down and die without further ado? Flitting moments, imminent emergencies, imperceptible intervals between two breaths, ought not to be encrusted with the eternal repose of marble. In any sculptural subject there should be a moral standstill, since there must of necessity be a physical one. Otherwise it is like flinging a block of marble up into the air, and, by some trick of enchantment, causing it to stick there. You feel that it ought to come down, and are dissatisfied that it does not obey the natural law. I see, said Miriam mischievously, you think that sculpture should be a sort of fossilizing process. But in truth, your frozen art has nothing like the scope and freedom of Hilda's and mine. In painting there is no similar objection to the representation of brief snatches of time. Perhaps, because a story can be so much more fully told in picture, and buttressed about with circumstances that give it an epoch. For instance, a painter never would have sent down yonder fawn out of his far antiquity, lonely and desolate, with no companion to keep his simple heart warm. Ah, the fawn, cried Hilda, with a little gesture of impatience. I have been looking at him too long, and now, instead of a beautiful statue, immortally young, I see only a corroded and discolored stone. This change is very apt to occur in statues. And a similar one in pictures, surely, retorted the sculptor. It is the spectator's mood that transfigures the transfiguration itself. I defy any painter to move and elevate me without my own consent and assistance. Then you are deficient of a sense, said Miriam. The party now strayed onward from hall to hall of that rich gallery, pausing here and there to look at the multitude of noble and lovely shapes which have been dug up out of the deep grave in which old Rome lies buried. And still the realization of the antique fawn in the person of Donatello, gave a more vivid character to all these marble ghosts. Why should not each statue grow warm with life? And Tenius might lift his brow, and tell us why he is forever sad. The Lycian Apollo might strike his lyre, and at the first vibration that other fawn in red marble, who keeps up a motionless dance, should frisk gaily forth, leading yonder satyrs and shaggy goat-shanks to clatter their little hoofs upon the floor, and all join hands with Donatello. Bacchus, too, a rosy flush diffusing itself over his time-stained surface, could come down from his pedestal and offer a cluster of purple grapes to Donatello's lips, because the god recognizes him as the woodland elf who so often shared his revels. And here, in this sarcophagus, the exquisitely carved figures might assume life and chase one another round its verge with that wild merriment which is so strangely represented on those old burial coffers, though still with some subtle allusion to death, carefully veiled, but forever peeping forth amid emblems of mirth and riot. As the four friends descended the stairs, however, their play of fancy subsided into a much more somber mood, a result apt to follow upon such exhilaration as that which had so recently taken possession of them. "'Do you know,' said Miriam confidentially to Hilda, 
I doubt the reality of this likeness of Donatello to the fawn, which we have been talking so much about. To say the truth, it never struck me so forcibly as it did Kenyon and yourself, though I gave in to whatever you were pleased to fancy, for the sake of a moment's mirth and wonder. I was certainly in earnest, and you seemed equally so, replied Hilda, glancing back at Donatello, as if to reassure herself of the resemblance. But faces change so much from hour to hour, that the same set of features has often no keeping with itself, to an eye at least which looks at expression more than outline. How sad and somber he has grown all of a sudden. Angry too, methinks. Nay, it is anger much more than sadness, said Miriam. I have seen Donatello in this mood once or twice before. If you consider him well, you will observe an odd mixture of the bulldog, or some other equally fierce brute, in our friend's composition. A trait of savageness hardly to be expected in such a gentle creature as he usually is. Donatello is a very strange young man. I wish you would not haunt my footsteps so continually. You have bewitched the poor lad, said the sculptor, laughing. You have a faculty of bewitching people, and it is providing you with a singular train of followers. I see another of them behind yonder pillar, and it is his presence that has aroused Donatello's wrath. They had now emerged from the gateway of the palace, and partly concealed by one of the pillars of the portico stood a figure such as may often be encountered in the streets and piazzas of Rome, and nowhere else. He looked as if he might just have stepped out of a picture, and in truth was likely enough to find his way into a dozen pictures being no other than one of those living models, dark, bushy-bearded, wild of aspect and attire, whom artists convert into saints or assassins, according as their pictorial purposes demand. Miriam, whispered Hilda, a little startled, it is your model. End of chapter 2 of volume 1